Well, a couple weeks before Pastor Leek went to heaven, he asked me to start preparing to preach through a short book. At the time, he thought he would need to take some time away to rest and regain strength. Of course, little did he know that he would soon enter his eternal rest. But in that conversation, I asked him, well, what about Titus? seems to have a lot of themes that are relevant for us in our church, both at this time in society, as well as the life of our church, you know, starting the search for a, uh, another pastor. And uh, chapter one, as you know, uh, gives qualifications for elders. And so he agreed. And with all of what's happened since then, I'm all the more convinced that Titus is a book that we need to study and work through as a church together. Uh, as I said, we're at the beginning stages of looking for a new senior pastor, and uh, we have a desperate need for more elders. And chapter 1 walks through qualifications and responsibilities of elders in light of the spiritual dangers that are out there in the world. As well, we are a congregation of converts in all stages of life. And chapter 2 of Titus provides instructions for men, women, older men and younger men and older women, younger women on what it means to live uh, for Christ. And so we need to study that section as well. As well, we are citizens in the world of unbelievers. And chapter 3 provides instructions for us in how we are to conduct ourselves among those who are uh, rejectors of Christ. So I would ask you to turn with me to Paul's letter to Titus. Titus is sandwiched in between First and Second Timothy and the book of Hebrews. Titus and Philemon are Paul's shortest inspired epistles, and so they're placed at the end of his corpus. The title for this message is Cretans for Christ, and it is my aim this morning to preach this entire epistle in one message. And then we will spend several months walking through it verse by verse in detail. But I thought that before we get into the, the weeds or the trees of the forest, it would be good to, to step back and get a picture of the whole so that as we are looking at the trees, we have better understanding of the big picture. I'm going to read the letter in a moment, but I want to give you some things to be looking for as we read through this epistle. If you know anything about Titus, the epistle, you know that Paul quotes a Cretan poet who describes his own people by saying they are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Well, what I want you to pay attention to is the fact that not only does Paul affirm this description, but using other terms, he describes all unbelievers of whom we used to be as having character that is essentially equally deplorable. In light of the character of Cretans and all believers, I also want you to pay attention to how Paul talks about salvation. In this epistle, the emphasis is not what we're saved from, God's wrath, but the emphasis is on what we are saved for, namely, godly living chiefly demonstrated through good deeds. In fact, there is such a heavy emphasis on good deeds in this epistle that the only statement of what we're saved from that he makes is that we are saved from lawless deeds. Also, uh, pay attention to the purpose statements. Uh, why should believers live godly? Why should they engage in good deeds? 
Purpose statements in any portion of Scripture are critical, and you'll hear them introduced by phrases like, so that, or in order that, or some version of, of those. And then finally, you'll notice that a couple times in the letter, Paul tells Titus to not deal with legal issues or genealogies or worthless things. Why does he tell Titus to not worry about those problems? Well, the answer is because at the end of the letter, he tells him to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos, a man who was um, knowledgeable of the law. Uh, he, uh, and in helping them, these two men who brought the letter to Titus were to be dealing with those issues. And so Paul wanted Titus to focus on establishing elders and instructing the people and let the lawyers effectively deal with the legal issues. Now, with those things in mind, follow along as we read Paul's letter to Titus. Paul, a bondservant of God and an epistle, excuse me, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. But at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. 
urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Well, if you wanted to summarize this uh, epistle in one sentence, as I was thinking through how to bring all of the important elements together, I came up with this statement and I realized uh, this is a restatement of Titus chapter 2, verse 14. So the summary statement of this whole letter, I think, is found in Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Look at it again. He says, He, that is Christ, gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. That is the core message of this epistle. You want to mark it. You want to underline it. This is what we're going to spend a good amount of time studying over the next few months. Now, we know less than we would like to know about the relationship 
between Paul and Titus. But what we do know is actually quite revealing and puts the power of the gospel on display. You see in chapter 1, verse 4, how, Titus, or how Paul refers to Titus as his true child in a common faith. This is a bond that Paul has with Titus as well as what he has with Timothy, whom he also calls his true child in the faith, as we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 1. But remember that though Timothy's father was a Greek, his mother was a Jew, and Timothy was brought up as a Jew. He was circumcised. So Paul was a Jew, Timothy was a Jew, and there were no barriers to their friendship. But Titus was an uncircumcised Gentile. And perhaps worse than being a Gentile, an ancient document called the Life and Acts of Titus, purportedly written by Zenos the lawyer, indicates that Titus was actually born of Cretan royalty. In other words, Titus may have been the worst of Gentiles, one who was defined as an always, always lying, evil beast, lazy glutton. They were a people hated by other Gentiles. Well, Paul, before his conversion, was a fastidious Jew. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and that means that Paul had an unmitigated hatred toward Gentiles. And he was unwilling to associate with them, as was any Pharisee, because they considered Gentiles to be unclean. In modern vernacular, we would say that Paul was a full-throated racist. More biblically, we would say that he lived out the sin of ethnic pride on the one hand and ethnic hatred on the other. It was not long, though, that after Paul's conversion, his attitude would change dramatically. Soon after his conversion, he went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, the region of Paul's hometown of Tarsus. And then in Galatians 2.1, Paul writes that after 14 years, he returned to Jerusalem with Barnabas, but he also took with him Titus. It seems that somewhere in those 14 years of ministry in and around Tarsus, that Titus was saved under Paul's ministry. And Paul took Titus to Jerusalem for the purpose of using him as exhibit A as to why Gentiles did not need to be circumcised in order to be Christians or to be considered uh, as the same class of Christians as Jews. No doubt Paul had a number of men he could have chosen throughout his ministry, but he apparently chose Titus because of his character and he was the best example he could find. This letter to Titus was written about 15 years after that trip to Jerusalem. And we don't know all of what took place during those 15 years, except that during those 15 years, Titus endeared himself to Paul and gained Paul's trust. And in fact, Paul used Titus to be his primary representative to do Paul's work as an apostle in the churches that he would write to. For example, it was Titus who took the letter that Paul wrote of First uh, and Second Corinthians to the, uh, to the church at Corinth. This was a church as you know, that was a rebellious church. They uh, had immorality in the church. There were false apostles that were trying to subvert Paul's authority. And Paul didn't send Titus just as a mailman taking the letter. He entrusted Titus to ensure that the letter was read and that it was obeyed and the false apostles were dealt with. Paul trusted and loved Titus just as much as he loved and trusted Timothy. 
Paul was no Jonah. Remember Jonah? He was sent to proclaim salvation and really judgment for the purpose of salvation to the Ninevites, the Israels of Israel. But he hated them. He went reluctantly and his hatred for them remained. Paul was sent to the Gentiles. He was the apostle of Jesus Christ to Gentiles and he loved them. And Paul loved and trusted Titus to do the critical work of establishing godly leadership in the churches of Crete, which is a task, if you really think about it, is monumental because of the potential effect it could have on the gospel witness in the future. Paul did not prefer Timothy because of their shared heritage. He trusted Timothy and Titus equally. That is the power of the gospel on display. From pure hatred for a people group to love and trust and partnership. Well, let me tell you a little bit more about Titus. As you saw at the end of the letter, Paul asked Titus to come to him at Nicopolis when the next messengers came. So when uh, Tychicus or Artemis came, Titus made his way back to Paul at Nicopolis. And about three or four years later, Paul finds himself in a Roman prison about to be put to death. And Paul tells Timothy in his final letter before his death that he had sent Titus to Dalmatia, which is on the other side of the Adriatic Sea from, from Rome or from Italy. We're not told what purpose he had in sending him there, and we're not told how long he was there. And really, that's the last we hear from uh, Paul or anyone else about Titus in Scripture. But church history tells us a little bit more. According to that document, The Life and Acts of Titus, of which we only have a fragment, Zenos the lawyer uh, tells us that Titus was the first overseer of the church in Gortina, a city of Crete. And if you go to Crete today, you will find an ancient church, the ruins of it, a church from the 6th century named after Titus. Ancient documents tell us that Titus died on Crete and he was buried in Candia, which happens to be the modern capital of the island. So piecing these details together, it seems that after Titus finished Paul's uh, directions of, of ministry, uh, he no longer had Paul to tell him what to do, so he returned home to uh, the island of his birth, Crete, and then served the Lord there as the pastor of a church and the bishop of the island until the Lord promoted him to glory. Well, Crete was an island with a long-standing reputation. Again, you know there from chapter 1, verse 12, how Paul quotes a Cretan po poet whose name is Epimenides. Uh, but don't take Paul's quotation of a poet as um, as support for being up on the culture of today. Epimenides actually lived 600 years before Paul. So think about that. He wrote about the reputation of the Cretans before Jerusalem was sacked and exiled to Babylon. That's a long time for one place to have the same reputation. But Epimenides was not the only one who wrote about the Cretans. There was an ancient idiom used to describe lying and deception. It was called playing the Cretan. And when the one being deceived was a Cretan, you'll find the phrase in ancient literature, playing the Cretan against the Cretans. Let me tell you a story. In the second century BC, a king of Macedonia was named Perseus. This was a wicked man who came to power by uh, convincing his father, who was the king, that his older brother had committed some act worthy of death. So the king put the next in line to death for whatever this crime was. 
Well, when the king recognized that he had been deceived and that he put to death his innocent son, uh, Plutarch, the ancient historian, tells us that he died of grief and anguish. Plutarch says about Perseus's character, along with his father's kingdom, he inherited his hatred of the Romans, but was not equal to the burden because of the littleness and baseness of his character, in which among all sorts of passions and distempers, avarice was the chief trait of all. Well, the day came when Perseus found himself standing in front of a formidable Roman army, And because of his greed, his avarice, he had refused to pay for a mercenary army that would enable him to overcome the Romans. And so he was left with his own soldiers and with soldiers from Crete. In a moment of cowardice, he pretended that he was going to make a sacrifice at the nearby city. So he left the battlefield and as any king would have, he had an entourage and all of his wealth with him. Well, eventually, as they were making their way to uh, this supposed city to make a sacrifice, his own soldiers, who of course knew their king really well, they began to peel off of this entourage. Uh, Plutarch says how one would say, I'm going to tie my shoe and, oh, I need to get a drink for a little bit. And they just wouldn't join up the crowd again. Well, eventually all that was left with with Perseus was the Cretans. Uh, They stayed with him, Plutarch says, not because of their noble character, but because they too were greedy and they wanted some payment. Well, as they traveled, Perseus would uh, pay these Cretan mercenaries with uh, treasure, gold, plates, and other things that he had gotten uh, that were originally from Alexander the Great. But at one point, he changed his mind because he realized, now actually, I want all this stuff back because I'm greedy. And so he uh, said to them, hey, I'll give you money in place of the treasure. I'll I'll trade you. I'll, I'll pay you an actual money instead of treasure. Plutarch writes, Now, those who understood him accurately did not fail to see that he was playing the Cretan against Cretans. But those who listened to him gave back the plate and were cheated, for he did not pay the money that he had promised. Now, that's not the end of the story. Sometime later, he's with his family and his treasure all by himself uh, with his family. And he decides he wants to escape by the sea. There's people after him. And so he finds a boat owner who happens to be a Cretan. And this boat owner... Uh, agrees to take him with him. But the boat owner says, hey, why don't you load up your treasure tonight? Come back after dark. We'll load up your treasure and then come back tomorrow night and then we'll leave. So that's what he does. And Plutarch says, the true Cretan that he was, the boat owner went off with the treasure. So in the 600s BC, Epimenides declares the reputation of these Cretans as always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. In the second century, they prove true to that reputation. And it's incredible when you think about that in the 60s AD, Paul confirms that same reputation. I mean, our nation is less than 300 years old. And wouldn't you say that our culture has changed rather dramatically over the last 300 years? But for them... The Cretan reputation stayed the same for over twice that long. For a reputation to stay in place for over 600 years, you would think that someone something had to be wrong with their DNA or something, right? Well, the problem is they had the same problem that all of us have, the curse of sin. Look again at chapter 3, verse 3. 
Paul writes, for we, including himself in this, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. I mean, maybe it's true that the Cretans had the particular reputation of being liars and gluttons, but every society has had its public sins and its secret sins. The human heart is desperately wicked, we learn in Jeremiah 17, 9. And in Romans chapter 3, Paul quotes the Old Testament in saying that we are liars and deceivers and murderers and we do not fear God. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 19, Paul describes unbelievers, Gentiles, this way. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. From God's perspective, it's no surprise that the Cretans had the same reputation for 600 years because the human race has been cursed by sin since the beginning when Adam and Eve fell in the garden. What changes over time is not how sinful people are, but what are the sins that they accept and what are the sins that they reject. I mean, don't think that just because 100 years ago there wasn't a pride month that those sins didn't exist. They just existed in corners and shadows and in the heart. And even when society has a negative attitude towards sin, which most societies do of some kinds of sin, it's not because they're a righteous society, but because they've just chosen to love some sins and hate others. For Titus to minister to Cretans was no more difficult than it is for us to minister and evangelize Americans and even our own unbelieving children. Apart from Christ, we are all Cretans. And because of that, we deserve the wrath of God, eternal death. We have rebelled against the God and creator of all. We are guilty of violating the law of the supreme judge of the universe, and we are worthy of the punishment that is due to us. If you have your eyes there, chapter 3, verse 3, Look at verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God is holy, 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 as we heard last week. God is righteous and just. He is full of vengeance and wrath against sin. But He is also abounding in kindness and love and mercy. And his kindness and love and mercy have been poured out in abundance toward those whom he has chosen out of this Cretan world. Paul clearly says there in verse 5 that he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done, 
course not. <laughs> we don't have any. Left to ourselves, we would be perpetually in rebellion against God. And we would choose to stay under His wrath until He poured it out. The only way for us to experience anything other than God's wrath is for Him to choose to save us. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God. Chosen of God. Paul himself, a former enemy of God, was commissioned by Jesus Christ for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel so that those whom God has chosen would be saved. What does it mean to be saved? Is salvation merely a get-out-of-jail-free card that now I'm free, I'm not under the wrath of God, so I can do whatever I want? Not at all. Go back to chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Again, this is the heart of the epistle. Verse 14 actually is the middle verse in the, the epistle. But verses 11 to 14 give us the heart and soul of what Paul is trying to communicate in this letter. Again, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Paul describes here three results of salvation. Three results of salvation. The first result is that we are saved, we are redeemed from sinful living. You see that in verse 12. Grace instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. And he also says it again in verse 14 when he says that he died, gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed. Now, of course, elsewhere, Scripture teaches us that we are saved from God's wrath and we are saved out of spiritual death. But here in Titus, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, limits his discussion to the fact that we are saved from the ongoing practice of ungodliness, worldly desires, and lawlessness. My friends, if you are living the same way you were before you professed to know Christ, something is wrong. Because Christ gave himself to free you from that life of sin. Well, not only is salvation redemption from sinful living, but secondly, Paul describes salvation as, as one who is owned by God. Look again there at verse 14. He gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Once you are saved by Jesus Christ, He owns you. You are His possession. And by virtue of His ownership of you, He has authority and control over your life. Do you know what term the Bible uses to describe those who are owned? Slave. I hear it out there. Slave. Don't be bothered by that term. Paul certainly wasn't. He gladly proclaimed the fact that 
he was a slave of God. Look again at chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul, a bondservant of God. Bondservant is not a good translation. It is the word doulos, which always and only means slave. One who is owned. Paul never says that he chose to serve Christ. You know, there's that illustration in the Old Testament that the slave who wanted to stay with his master after the year of Jubilee could go to the door and get basically an earring to show that he loved his master and that was a bond slave. He bound himself to his master. That's not what salvation is all about. Salvation is not you choosing to love and serve God. Salvation is God choosing you to be his slave. We are slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Lord means, master. And what greater master can one have? I mean, after all, human masters are the... they're always looking for the best slaves they can find. They're looking for the smart ones, the strong ones, the attractive ones, but not God. God wrote this in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27 to 31. He says, God has chosen, as you listen, think, okay, this is me. This This is what God thinks of me. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When you and I look at the world around us, sometimes we can be tempted to see certain individuals and say, yeah, I think God made the right choice in choosing me. Just remember, God chose you because you were foolish and weak and nothing. You have nothing to boast about. God chose me not because of how great I am, but because of how great he is. What master chooses from among the worst of people to be his slaves? Well, the father does. What master purchases those slaves with his own blood? Jesus does. And what master loves his slaves and washes them and redeems them and then transforms them? The Holy Spirit does. What master even goes beyond that and adopts these slaves into his family and makes them co-heirs with his son? The father does. To be saved is to be owned by God. And there is no greater privilege than that. Well, Paul teaches us here that salvation is to be redeemed from sin, to be owned by God. And third, Salvation is to be zealous for good deeds. As those who are owned by God, our submission to his authority is reflected in how we live. And our Lord Jesus equips and commands us to live like him and for him. We see this again in verse 12, that we are instructed not only to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, but positively to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And then as we've seen already in verse 14, that we are to be zealous for good deeds. 
normally when you hear Christians talk about good deeds, you hear it negatively, as if good deeds are somehow bad things. And the reason is because good deeds are bad things when they are motivated to try and earn God's forgiveness. God says through the prophet Isaiah that our deeds are like a filthy rag. And a filthy rag is not just any rag that you pick up off the floor and throw in the wash with all your other clothes. A filthy rag in that specific way it's used is the cloth that women would use for personal hygiene before there were personal uh, feminine hygiene products. Or think of it like a cloth diaper that an infant has soiled. That's not something you just run with everything else. It's a dirty rag that you don't want to touch and you don't want it to touch anything else. That's what God thinks of your attempts to earn his forgiveness. But once you are a recipient of his forgiveness by his grace, then everything changes. The same deeds that he hated because you were motivated to try and earn his love, he welcomes and embraces when they're motivated by love and service and faith-filled obedience. More than that, he saved you so that you would be eagerly and actively engaged in practicing good deeds. Well, what are good deeds? The Greek word for good has multiple nuances to it. One is that these deeds or actions are attractive. They're attractive. So when someone looks at your life and they say, then they see these good deeds, uh, they are attracted to the way you live. They look at your life and they say, that is a great way to live. I wish I could live like that or I want to live like that. Our conduct as Christians should not repulse people. Yelling judgment against sinners at political rallies is repulsive to unbelievers. Lacking integrity in your work is repulsive to unbelievers. When believers act like unbelievers, that turns people away from the gospel because it communicates to them that your supposed good news doesn't have the answers to transform the brokenness of this world. On the other hand, when you live following the principles of wisdom and stewardship, when you exhibit self-control and humility in your choices, when you're generous and kind to others, people are attracted to a person like that. And even if they're just observing from a distance. They can, they can affirm the goodness of that lifestyle. A small example that we see all the time is when somebody gets up in front of a crowd and they say something like, we've been married for 15 years, 20 years, 25 years. What's the immediate response? Everybody claps. Why? Because everybody sees the inherent goodness of two people maintaining their covenant promises to each other. So our works should be attractive to people, not repulsive. Unbelievers may not find our morality or our theology agreeable, but they should find our conduct appealing. Paul identifies this principle in chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, when he talks to slaves, and he says that they should behave in such a way, verse 10, that they adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. They make the gospel look beautiful. Well, another nuance is that our works should be good in that they are useful. They benefit others. They meet needs. And you see this in chapter 3, verse 14, when 
Paul says, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs. Good deeds are not just a lifestyle that benefits you. It's a lifestyle that benefits others. They're the kinds of things that you do because God desires you to be a blessing to others. It could be something like providing a a meal for someone in need or helping someone with a task they can't accomplish on their own or even just practicing discipleship. Like what we see in chapter 2, verse 3, that older women are to have the character that Paul describes so that they may encourage the younger women in their lives. That's discipleship. Friends, God saved you not just so that you would, wouldn't experience His wrath, though that's true. God saved you not just so that you would stop living a life of sin. That's true. God saved you just not just so that you would he could make you a trophy of his grace and claim you as his own though that's true God saved you so that you would live a life that honors him by reflecting his character and being his hands and feet in the world as you serve and minister to those around you Well, Titus modeled this in his life. After the Lord saved him, he submitted himself to whatever the Lord instructed him to do. We don't know what his life was like before he met Paul, what his work was, what his education was. Uh, But he gave up everything to serve the Lord alongside Paul. And that took him all over the place. He did whatever Paul told him to do. He went wherever Paul told him to go. And when Paul wasn't no longer around to give him directions. He went home and lived out the days of his life in service to Christ. You know, we have no idea when the Cretans shed their reputation. You don't hear that phrase around anymore. But if the pattern of history is any indication, when the gospel invades a nation and Christians live out their calling from God, societies change. I can only guess that as the gospel of Jesus Christ infiltrated the island and as the believers began to break free from the generational sins and wickedness that they had practiced, it could no longer be said, oh, Cretans, yeah, they're liars and deceivers because they weren't, at least not some or maybe even many of them. In fact, perhaps some would say, yeah, some of them are actually really, really zealous for good deeds. Well, there's a lot more we could say as we work through this epistle in, in the next couple of months, few months, but you will be helped if you remember verse 14 of chapter 2. That is the core truth that we will come back to time and time again. This is what I pray for myself and for our church that we are known for, that we're known as those who are God's possession and as those who are zealous for good deeds. Well, Hope Bible Church, we don't live on Crete, but we are Cretans, and we live in a Cretan society. I was speaking to someone the other day, and we were lamenting how brash unbelievers can be in their deception and lies. We certainly know that politicians make a career of lies and deception. Uh, The internet is flush with all kinds of liars who seek to deceive people on everything from false news to false science and false religion. Most of you interact with unbelievers on a daily basis and you see the result of lies all the time. People lie on their taxes. They lie about their expertise. They deceive others to get money from them. 
You, maybe you've had this experience. I was buying a motorcycle a number of years ago. Didn't have it for very long, so that's another story. But as I was, as we were transacting, we were filling out the title transfer paperwork, and he asked me, how much money do you want me to put that you paid? I was kind of confused because I just handed him a wad of cash, and he knew exactly how much I had paid him. But he pressed on. He's like, no, how much money do you want me to write down here? Because that's going to affect how much taxes you pay. A few years later, I was selling one of my cars, and uh, the people asked me to write down an amount significantly lower than what they had actually paid. Don't worry, Alan. I was honest. (laughs) Maybe this has happened to you. Once I was at a gas station waiting uh, for someone to land uh, at a nearby airport, and while I was sitting there waiting, a lady came up to my window and uh, rolled down the window, or I should say, pressed the button, and... uh, she told me this tragic story about her life and the difficulty she was going through and how she desperately needed money for gas so that she could get to um, uh, an interview that she was already late for. So I gave her some money and through the side mirror, I watched her go back to her car, which was parked right next to the pump. She went right into the driver's side door and sat down, sat there for a few minutes and drove off. People are just liars. Some of you are brash liars. Some of you young people, you lie to your parents. You lie to your teachers. You lie to your friends. You portray yourself as righteous when you come to church, but in your heart, you know you're lying. You know you're a deceiver. Well, we're not only a society of liars, we're also a society of lazy gluttons. We eat more than we should. We work less than we get paid to work. We spend endless hours and loads of money on video games and entertainment of all kind. Now, food is good and rest is good and entertainment is good when, when practiced with wisdom. But as a society, we have made idols of these things. For many people, college is less about the education and more about the parting. You talk to any Christian teacher or anyone who works in public schools and you'll hear horror stories of what it's like in public schools these days. Kids are immoral, unruly, disrespectful. Church, we live in a moral wasteland. No matter how nice it looks when we drive around outside, the people around whom we live are Cretans. They're lost in their sin. What we need is not more laws or more protests or more social workers. The world doesn't have answers to the problems of society. What we need is Christ. We need God to save people from their ungodliness. And not only do we need to proclaim Christ, we need to be Cretans for Christ. We need to live as representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ in this world, proclaiming His wrath and His love, His justice and His mercy. And we need to devote ourselves to living in such a way that those who are morally confused can look at our lives and be attracted to us. You, you need to work so that as your co-workers observe your integrity and the excellence with which you work, and they're drawn to you. You need to speak on social media and in public in ways that is inviting to hear and attractive to the soul. And when people are drawn to us, we will have those opportunities to explain why we are different. We'll have opportunities to explain the transforming work of Christ in our lives. 
Well, I want to close by issuing a summer challenge. Three weeks ago, my friend Rocky came and gave a, a message from Psalm 119 and challenged us with regard to our attitudes toward the Scripture. And he said that it's not just important to read the Scripture, but to meditate on Scripture, to love the Scripture. I know many of you were blessed by that. And if you missed that, I would encourage you to go to our website or to the YouTube channel and, and listen to it as a very helpful, convicting message for everyone. Well, Titus is a small letter, as you've seen. It's 46 verses. And since I won't be preaching every week, it'll take us at least four to six months to get through it. I want to issue a challenge to you that you memorize this letter. You know, if you were to read this letter, which takes, according to my reading, five minutes and 30 seconds to get through, if you were to read that every day from uh, tomorrow until the end of when we're done studying it, you'll probably have it memorized just by doing that alone. But if you want to get to the point where you can recite it, you probably need to put a little bit more effort. But this is not a, it's not an official thing we're doing as a church. We're not going to have a hope book group like we do for reading scripture together. I'm just putting, that, putting it out there for you to consider. There is so much rich truth. And as we study it together, your, your heart will be lifted up and encouraged. You'll be helped. It will help you in your own life, in your own battle against sin. It will help you with your kids. It will help you as you work out in the world. The Lord will use it in your life in remarkable ways should you choose to do that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, how grateful we are for your word. Because it's in your word that we learn about who we really are. We are so easily self-deceived. We think better of ourselves than we are. We tend to think much of the good aspects of ourselves and to ignore those wicked aspects. And left to ourselves, we would be lost forever and under your wrath. But you have given us the Lord Jesus Christ. Out of your love and grace and mercy, you have poured out your own blood so that we would be saved, so that we would be forgiven, and so that we would be transformed. Lord, I pray as we give attention to this letter over the next coming months, that you would do a work in our church that individually, in our small groups, in our marriages, uh, in, in, in the activities and ministries we do as groups, and collectively as a whole, that we would be growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, that we would be growing in our zeal for good deeds, that we would have a significant impact on this world not because of anything that we have done, but because of your grace, which empowers us to live for you. So help us, and may we do all things for the glory of Christ. Amen.